What does Deuteronomy teach about alternative religions? The God of Deuteronomy would hardly make it as a politically correct God in our contemporary society. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapters 16 and 17 and find out why God called His people to exclude all other gods. Why God said no to the worship of sex and the worship of the stars. Let's join Dave Wurtzen as he talks about all the food choices in our culture and then clarifies that God is not one of many things on that menu. Have you ever stopped to think about all the different foods that we can eat in our culture? For example, last night we celebrated a birthday party for one of our friends and we had manicotti, delicious manicotti. That's Italian. Mary and I went out with some friends and we had sushi. That was a new experience. And they had a coaxus into it with the chopsticks and all. And whether or not that raw fish was really palatable, only the Lord knows. But it really is quite tasty. So why do we try different kinds of food, do you think? What's the idea in trying to eat different kinds of food? Because your taste buds kind of get worn out with the, you know, the regular kinds of foods they eat. And you can only tank down so many McDonald's hamburgers. And after a while, you just want to try something new. And in our culture, even the restaurant chains proliferate. What I want you to stop and think about it is, is that in our culture right now, that idea that we have about food is the way that we've started to think about religion. You see, the days of the New England Puritans that we talked about a little bit the last time we were together, when the Puritans and the Pilgrims, which were a little bit different than the Puritans, but it was a basic biblical faith, Jesus Christ died on the cross, Jesus Christ rose again, you need to believe in him. The founding of our country on the East Coast was very monolithic religiously. And it dominated our culture for many, many years. But right now in the United States of America, when it comes to religion, it's like a smorgasbord. In fact, if you go into Dallas, almost any major city has mosques, it has temples, it has reading rooms, it has Buddhist temples. It will have just a whole different array of all different kinds of religions. And so if you want to experiment, the opportunity is available to you. And the way that we think as Americans, it's very politically correct to think that like sampling different kinds of food, it's okay to sample different kinds of religion. Isn't that right? Because basically the idea is that we're all trying to somehow find the truth and the Buddhists have a little bit of truth and the Hindus have a little bit of truth and, and maybe the, the, the Krishnas, the Hare Krishnas have a little bit of truth and the Mormons have a little bit of truth and on and on it goes. We have all these different brands. And based upon the prevailing view of our culture, the idea is, as I go out into life, if these different religions can meet some of my needs, if they can satisfy some of my spiritual hunger, then everything's all right. You need to face and think very hard about how open you are to that kind of thinking. It's the atmosphere you breathe. It's tolerant. It's open. We need to be willing to face all these different kinds of religions. In fact, almost with fear and trembling, do I want you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 16? Because God is not going to be politically correct in the present atmosphere of the United States at all. You see, what we're going to find out is that in Deuteronomy chapter 16, the Lord's going to be very exclusive. And he's going to tell you that all these new brands of religion, all these new things from sitting on the edge of the Grand Canyon 
and meditating and getting in touch with a great mother goddess, the mother who gave birth to all the earth. And that might sound very with it if you're sitting there, but God's going to say, I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, because the first thing I want you to notice is God will leave no place in your heart for any other God. And that's totally politically incorrect. You see, the Lord God of the heavens, the ones that created heaven and earth, is going to come to you and say that all false religion will be very tolerant. When you don't have the truth, when, when everything is relative, you don't know where you're going, you can afford to slip slide through a whole different kinds of belief systems. But if you've found the truth, if you've found the one who's really there, if you've found the God that really created what we have, we're going to find out he's not very tolerant. Look how Moses talked to his people as they were about ready to enter the promised land. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, and right at the end of the chapter we have verse 21. It says this, Do not set up any wooden Asherah pole. And notice, don't set up an Asherah pole beside the altar you build to the Lord, your God. Second of all, do not erect a sacred stone, for these the Lord your God hates. You see how unpolitically correct that is? I mean, God says, if you are as my chosen people and you have entered into a relationship with me and you've come to know me and you know that in the beginning I created the heaven and the earth, God says. You know that on Mount Sinai I came and I delivered the moral standards of humanity to you. Right at the center of those Ten Commandments are these words. Thou shalt honor your father and your mother Thou shalt not commit adultery. And it begins with, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart. You see, if you believe that the Lord God of the heavens and the earth, the one that created all things, is the one that revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, then he's exclusive. In fact, he begins all of his moral standards by saying, it begins by your absolute and total devotion to me. No place for any other total heart commitment. No place for any other false God, because I'm the true God. And God is very strong on this, and it, and it comes across my own heart, hard for me to hear. God told his people in the midst of a religion that was totally what we call syncretistic. In fact, when I start to tell you about the Asherah and this, this column that they set up representing the Baal, it's very confusing and complicated because the gods of the ancient Near East kind of ooze one into another. The stories change. It's totally amalgamated. Everything's mixed up together. You can move from Babylon to Egypt to Canaan over eventually to Rome and Greece and the gods just kind of flow one into the other. The story changes a little bit. The different dramatic parts that are played out but what I want you to realize is that across the ancient Near East when Moses was writing, it was very acceptable to take one God and use it. Any God that you could find that would work for you, any system of belief that would work for you, any system that would make you feel that you could be productive and fertile and that your, your crops would produce and that you could find happiness and maybe some deliverance from, uh, from the death or sickness or plague, you would grab a hold of it. And in the midst of this, this pluralism of religion, these words thundered out from Mount Sinai. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
And Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 21, is just Moses going on and saying, this is the way that law applies. And so he says to his Old Testament people, and we're going to begin looking at what God said to his Old Covenant people about their involvement with other gods. The first thing he says is, don't set up any wooden Asherah pole beside the altar that you built to the Lord. I want you to see that they built an altar to the Lord. They were worshiping Yahweh God, the one that appeared to them at Mount Sinai. But what God tells them in this command is, as you worship me, there is no place in my sanctuary, there is no place in my tabernacle, and then eventually when the temple was built, there is no place in my temple, no room for any other object of devotion and worship alongside of me. And the first thing he warned them about is don't put in a Asherah beside the altar of the Lord. You say, well, Dave, man, that doesn't do anything for me. What in the world is an Asherah? Well, Asherah, some of you are reading me yeah, that's what I like to know. An Asherah in the Canaanite pantheon was the mother goddess. The ultimate god in Canaanite ritual was El which was kind of the general name that was used in, in Eucharitic and Hebrew for God. It was kind of like our English word God. But in the Canaanite belief system, El was kind of a passive father. He was the creator of things, kind of, but he stayed very much in the background. Um, his consort, his goddess, was this woman, this Asherah. And she was represented in the Canaanite religion by trees. In fact, they would take one tree, and it's difficult, they would plant like a grove of trees. Then they would also carve out a wooden idol in the form of a goddess. And they would put, like they would have El in the center of their temple. They'd also have one of these Asherah, which would be this column, this female goddess figure. And the idea was that they worshipped fertility. Now, there's something else that it mentioned in this verse. The second thing that we're not supposed to do is to erect a sacred stone. The idea of this sacred stone, it's a stone column. You have the mother goddess. You can't put that aside alongside the Ark of the Covenant. So I want you to think about the, the way that we've learned that the temple in the Old Testament was set up. In the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant which represented God's covenant with his people, the rules and the morality of the king. His presence was not represented. He would be the invisible Shekinah glory of God, just the shining light, just the glory. Remember in the Old Testament, no physical representations of the invisible God. In Canaanite worship, that was totally untrue. They would always make some kind of a representation. So what they would put at the heart of their sanctuary, instead of the moral laws of God, they put the mother goddess. They put this trunk of a tree like that was carved into the shape of a woman. Then they would also put a stone column, like an obelisk. And just to be very straight with you, in their thinking, it represented the male reproductive organ. So right at the heart of their temple is this fertility symbol and this symbol that represents the male reproductive organ. So in Canaanite worship, at the center of their temple, what had control of their hearts was this belief in fertility, and they worshipped sexuality. And God told his Old Testament people, you cannot worship the Lord God of heaven and earth and have an Asherah, the mother goddess, 
and have the symbol of the bale. That male column was the symbol of the bale, who was also represented as the bull god, the fertile, powerful uh, bull god and storm god. You cannot put those symbols of the worship of sexuality alongside the worship of Yahweh. Why not? I want you to think about that. Because as I look around, there's a lot of precious kids. And every one of these precious kids deserved that the moment they were born into the world, there was a daddy that was there. And the daddy was afraid. And he was praying and he was asking God to bring safety to that precious little gift that he was going to receive. And that daddy's heart would swell with devotion and pride. And he would hold his wife's hand, and and as they put that baby up on the new mother's bosom, together a man and wife would say, we're going to make a home for this precious little one, and we're going to give them life, we're going to feed them, we're going to shelter them, we're going to clothe them. And the daddy's going to go out into the world, he's going to work to provide so that that little baby can have a home and can grow to maturity, and life's going to revolve around the security of that home. You see, at the heartbeat of the Old Testament law is, Honor your father and your mother. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The Ten Commandments are about homes because that's the beginning of where relationships build and become secure and where we learn about love. The worship of Asherah and the worship of Baal take you totally away from that. You see, what I just described is a sexuality that produces babies, that produces homes, that produces the joy of the Lord. It's all filled with exclusive devotion. Even if the Lord doesn't bring the blessing of children, he gives the blessing in the marriage relationships like he gave to Adam and Eve. They were both naked and they were unashamed. And the Song of Solomon talks about the very erotic celebration of sexual love within the marriage relationship. Asherah and Baal take you totally away from that. Asherah and Baal in the Canaanite religion is the world of the illicit erotic. It's a world that every one of you know about. As you start to move up into early adolescence, it's some of those first yearnings that you have when you realize as guys, the guys realize, man, there's other beings in this planet besides just men. And some of your friends at school start to show you some literature, some magazines with full-color pictures. And something inside of you says, man, I shouldn't really look at that. But some of you do. And some of you begin to do it repeatedly. And you young guys that then become old guys get in your mind this picture of this ideal, ultimate female. The ultimate symbol of fertility. The ultimate woman of desirability. The ultimate woman of your sexual prowess. That's the Asherah. And those forces within you Those forces within you are the forces that worked in the Canaanite myth, in the Canaanite religion. And I want you to realize that your sexuality is intimately tied with the devotions of your heart. And you need to think very carefully about the power of Asherah, you guys, in your life. The power of Asherah is that illicit, incredible pull that can take place deep in your heart. It's the pull during high school where everybody is saying, we just all do this. We can't tell the kids, thou shalt wait until marriage. Thou shalt wait for an exclusive relationship because it's just natural for everyone to enjoy Asherah. It's natural for everyone just to enjoy sexuality. 
And so we have to hand out supposedly safe sex condoms because that's where our culture is. That's Baal again and Asherah again. It's the same modern manifestation. And I want you to think very hard about this because this Asherah has very much infiltrated the people of God. And it happens like when, if you guys are away on a business trip and you go out at night and you, and you sit there looking at a movie, you are watching the modern equivalent in some of the movies that you watch of the ancient Canaanite Asherah. You are looking at a gigantic, full-wall presentation of sexuality over and over again. And you are seeing it under the most artistic conditions imaginable. And it is tintillating you. And you're killing your wives, guys. I'm just talking to you really straight because it's infiltrating God's family like the plague. And God says you cannot have the worship of the true God of Mount Sinai, the God of morality, the God of families, God of ethics, and put a shira alongside of her. And when you guys sit there and watch that, your wife can never measure up to that. You're killing her. You're just slaying her. And your heart begins to creep away from her. And I deal with one situation after another where a guy's heart has been taken away. And he walks away from his legitimate loves. And he walks away from the security that he should have provided for his family. Why? Because he's fallen under the intoxicating drink of the shira. And God comes to us and he says, just like I told my Old Testament people, you need to realize that there's a whole world of erotic, illicit sexuality that you are to have nothing to do with. In the modern world right now, we're entering a major phase where there's tremendous movement of taking away all the distinctions. People like Madonna will work through all different kinds, going from men to women. It's all mixed up, and you think that's really avant-garde. And you think it's so new. In the worship of ancient Asherah and the worship of Baal, one of the major parts of their priesthood was castrated men that dressed as women that acted out the part of women, and there was all kinds of illicit prostitution. That's why God vomited. That's why his stomach turned over and says, this is an abomination. And it's very important for you to realize that God says you cannot put an Asherah and a Baal in the worship of God. And I want every one of you to ask yourself, within your family, within your own personal thought life, as I'm really honest, there's a part of me that there's a pull from that. Some of you go on trips. If you ever go to Paris, one of the major tourist attractions in Paris would be to go to the shows in Paris and see all kinds of this kind of thing going on. Men dressed up as women. Women dressed up as men. You get one of the latest Vogue's, one of the top female models dresses up like a man. Why? Because this game of Asherah and Baal is always to take away the distinctions, always to get away from the, the wholeness and the purity of a strong masculine man with a beautiful feminine woman that he loves and that they have an exclusive relationship forever in this life. Satan's always trying to pull you away from that. And God says to you, think hard. Face the truth. He says, I'm the one that will make you strong. I'm the one that will help little boys to grow up and know who they are 
And they'll understand when those whiskers start to grow on their chin that it really means something, that it's a beautiful design of the Creator. And as the woman's body, as our little girls begin to grow and they begin to change, and any idiot in his right mind would know, they are totally different, beautifully unique from the little boys in our home. And we have that marvelous separation of the sexes that ultimately leads to tremendous attraction for the one that God has for you. And God says to his people, just like he said in the people in 1440, as Moses gave his words, or 1400, he says, don't put the worship of Asherah, the worship of Baal. Don't worship a stone. Don't worship an idol. Don't worship what will turn into just a hard body. Instead, he says, be fully and completely devoted to me. The first thing I want you to realize is that Moses and the Lord God of the New Testament, Paul says this. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells his people, in 2 Corinthians, have nothing to do with sexual immorality. It has no place among the people of God. And oh, how we need to pray for each other and how we need to plead with one another and how we need to hold each other accountable so that we don't fall into laying Asherah and Baal alongside our worship of God. And one of the best ways not to do that is to honestly be confronted and face what's going on in our own heart and then allow the new life of the Savior to change us. The second thing that I want you to see is that Moses warned the people not only about putting an Asherah and a Baal along the sacred place of their heart. He also warned them about something else. It's down in the next paragraph. Look at chapter 17, verse 3. And contrary to my commands, has worshipped other gods, bowing down to them, or to the sun, or the moon, or the stars of the sky. And this has been brought to your attention, and you must investigate it thoroughly. Moses not only warned the people about the, this Canaanite worship, that it worshipped sexuality, he also warned them about astrology. Now, astronomy is a legitimate science. And some of our young men and women might get involved in it. It's a marvelous science. The study of the stars and the planets and the solar system and determining their orbits and marvelous mathematics in fact, very strong believers. Copernicus, for example, is one of the founders of early astronomy. He's the one that really set it on a firm mathematical foundation. And then along with Galileo, they laid the whole foundation of modern astronomy. Both of them were committed born-again believers, contrary to what some people might think. They loved the, the Lord Jesus, they loved his word, and they realized that all of creation was a gift of God, which gave them the courage to try to figure out what the handiwork of the Creator had done. But down through the centuries, there's also not only been astronomy, there's also been astrology. And astrology believes it's not just about the mathematics of, of finding out the properties of the stars and the heavens. Astrology believes that the movement of the stars impacts upon your life. In other words, if you were born at a certain date, at a certain time, an astrologer will figure out the layout of the heavens, the layout of the constellations, and they will determine a life destiny for you. It's based upon a belief that somehow the movement of the astral heavens have to do with your personal life. And that's called astrology. And it leads into spiritual devotion. It leads into control over your life. 
In the word of God, we learn that my God shall supply all my needs. We learn that trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean upon your own ability to make moral decisions. And everything you do, seek to know him and he will guide your paths. He's the God of your life. In my own personal life, it's the Lord God of heaven and earth that control my destiny. He knows the day of my birth. He knows the day of my death. He's my father in heaven, and he's in control, and he's the one that I talk to. In astrology, you believe that these forces of the heavens are controlling you. Now, most of you, as I talk to you, you're sitting there going, boy, you know, that has no influence on my life at all. How many of you have ever read the astrology report in the Dallas Morning News that will be there right today? Why do you do that? Well, a lot of you do it just because you're curious. Just because it's kind of, you know, I, this is something, you know, that is kind of in our culture. How many of you have ever, have ever heard someone say, well, what's your sign? Like some of the kids are going to ask, you know, ask somebody for a date. One of the things that's used, the, the, the guy will say, well, what's your sign? What a creative way to begin a relationship. In fact, girls, if a guy starts out with that, that's the end. <laughs> How many of you have ever heard of somebody doing that? Okay, in 1988, the wife of the President of the United States began to control schedules by astrological reports. That's not back in 1400, that's now. In fact, if I would have been preaching to you, even when I first started preaching, astrology was not really that powerful. But as we move through the 60s, during times of great tumult, great changes in culture, astrology down through the centuries has raised its head. And it's the belief that somehow these impersonal forces, these movements of the heavens, control your life. We are going to go on from this point in our next time together to discover that it is the personal Heavenly Father of Jesus Christ who controls our lives and not the movement of the stars. We want to challenge you to worship the artist who made the stars and not get sidetracked into worshiping inanimate things that will never be able to bring you peace.